Hello, and welcome to Head to Head, an Investment Week podcast where we bring people from opposing sides of a debate to discuss their views. I'm Kathleen Gallagher, Features Editor at Investment Week, and today we are discussing the pros and cons of the divestment of oil and gas companies. On Sunday, I returned from COP26 in Glasgow, and at the conference, there was much discussion about whether divestment and by association exclusions were still the best strategy for the asset management community to support the transition to net zero. Many CEOs and members of the community now firmly believe that engagement is the best approach. However, there remains a divide, particularly when it comes to fossil fuels and the oil and gas industry. In fact, on Monday, more than 130 MPs signed a cross-party letter to their pension fund calling on it to divest from fossil fuel companies. And so investors still seem to demand the divestment approach. So exclusions of oil and gas companies still relevant? We've got Edward Heaven, Head of Sustainable Investment at Montanaro, and Paul Jordan, CEO of Amati Global Investors, to discuss just that. Welcome both. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, to start off, Ed, do you want to tell us kind of your role and what your views are on the divestment of oil and gas? Sure. Um, so my name is Ed Heaven from Montanaro Asset Management, uh, where I'm Head of Sustainable Investments. Um, we run a number of smaller mid-cap funds, um, all of which have um, an ESG, um, an ethical overlay. Um, and we also run a, a global impact fund, the Montanaro Better World Fund. Um, one of my um, responsibilities is that I sit on our sustainability committee and we are responsible for, for managing and um, uh, adapting and developing our ethical framework. And one of the um, ethical restrictions that we've had in place now for a number of years across all of our funds is an exclusion on investing in, in fossil fuels, so including oil and gas companies. Um, and the reason for this is, is that um, we really think that exclusion has a, a clear role to play in, in helping to accelerate the transition to a, a net zero economy. Um, there are some um, arguments that we believe uh, across the, the ethical space, the investment space, um, the scientific, and also the, the innovation um, space. Um, so I'll just briefly run through each of those, and I'm sure we'll get into them in podcast. Um, but just from an ethical perspective, um, we believe, and, and we've been influenced heavily by our own investors in this, that it is morally wrong to profit from um, companies that are um, causing the climate crisis. And, and we believe um, these uh, fossil fuel um, oil and gas producers are, are at the heart of this problem. Um, from an investment perspective, um, these businesses are fundamentally valued on, on their reserves. So um, we believe there's an inherent risk from investing in these assets because ultimately they can never all be used if we are to, to tackle climate change. And then science, you know, clearly backs that up. Um, you know, we, we just can't use the, the amount of fossil fuel reserves that, that we found. Um, this is very uh, unequivocal that the latest IPCC report was based on the scientific findings of, of about 14,000 studies. So, you know, this is just a clear consensus now. Something that we're very interested in, though, is this argument around innovation. Um, and I'm sure Paul's got lots of thoughts on this, too. Um, but what really excites us about this is, yes, you've got the, the sort of the, the ethical restriction angle. You've also got this future investment opportunity that, allow, that, that allows you to 
to drive towards with the capital that you're not investing in, in oil and gas companies. Um, I think Sir David Attenborough up at COP last week was saying that we, we've got to fix our, our eyes on keeping 1.5 degrees in reach. And to do that, a new industrial revolution powered by millions of sustainable innovations is essential. Um, and, and that for us is, a, is the really exciting aspect of not investing in, in oil and gas companies. Perfect, thank you. And Paul, what about you? So yes, Paul Jordan, I'm, I'm CEO of Amati Global Investors and we run uh, a range of funds, but uh, my background's in running UK small companies funds, which I've been doing for 22 years or so. And uh, we go across all sectors. And as a business, we've chosen not to um, follow the um, principle of divestment from oil and gas. <clears throat> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by making a distinction because quite often in these kind of conversations, we model up whether it's worth investing in oil and gas with the idea of divestment. And so I'm going to set aside, you know, we would obviously not invest in oil and gas if we didn't think it was a good investment. And there are periods of time when that's true and periods of times when that's not true. So I'm not going to argue about whether they're good investments because that's not really the point here. Um, the idea of divestment is, and is, is one where you're, what you're saying to a fund manager is, we don't want you to hold this asset class under any circumstances for a moral reason. And the history of divestment really came from uh, instances like South Africa, where we had, a, we had a regime which obviously the UK was very closely associated with, which uh, operated apartheid. And there was a human rights reason, a very clear human rights reason why it was regarded as unethical to uh, invest in South Africa. And you know, there were debates over whether that would be damaging to South Africa and therefore the very people you were trying to protect were hurt by it. But it was deemed that you know, if you apply enough pressure, you bring about change. And when the change happens, you then lift the divestment criteria. So there was kind of a clear objective. Um, there was, you know, you're tackling something which almost everybody regarded as a, a, moral, uh, a moral evil, if you like, something that everybody would be better if we got rid of it. And, uh, and when that changed, the divestment ended. So that's kind of, that's the broad context for this idea, which I, you know, I'm, I'm actually wholly in favor of. There are some circumstances when, you know, those kind of moral arguments for us very much apply. And, and you know, I, I'm in the context of oil and gas, um, very committed to the idea of, you don't invest in any extractive industry where you're trampling on the human rights of the citizens in the country where those resources are coming from. And you know, that's an idea that we, we call clean trade as an organization which I helped start called Clean Trade, which is very much promoting that idea of, you know, you really need to pay attention to the human rights and the extractive industries. So then obviously what's now happened in, in the conversation in, in the fund management industry is that there's a very widespread move to talk about, well, shouldn't we divest from oil and gas because we have this climate crisis and isn't therefore the answer, if we could just stop investing in oil and gas, would we not therefore solve the climate problem? And I've got some pretty big objections to that intellectually. Um, the first and perhaps most important is, um, and this maybe touches on a point Ed said, you know, the problem is not being caused by oil and gas companies. And, and the, the idea of divestment indicates that these, if only can get rid of this problem, these companies, we solve the problem. The problem's being caused actually by us, by all of us. And so I'm, I'm actually, I, I think it's, there's potential huge damage to be done by that kind of blame shifting, where we, instead of saying, I'm the guilty party here because I'm using a heck of a lot of oil and gas in my life, let's shift the blame to somebody else, these nasty oil and gas companies who let me do it. 
um, and and then we fix the problem. And I think that that blame shifting is almost the thing I'm I'm most concerned about in in the way the debate's going in the financial services industry. You know, I I personally think that blame shifting is very wrong and and will have lots of bad consequences down the line. Partly because we won't blame ourselves. You know, we are the problem in climate change. It's not the oil and gas companies. So then the second point is that I don't think we'll begin to solve the problem of our usage of oil and gas by tackling the supply. I think we can only solve it by tackling the demand. And so, you know, I'm really committed as an investor to investing in the things which are going to change that demand structure. And I completely agree with Ed that, you know, there's lots of really exciting investment opportunities that are created from that. And, you know, that's what investors, of course, should be focused on. But the problem is, you know, oil and gas actually is essential to every single one of those steps. You know, we cannot, the ironic position we're in is where we cannot possibly solve the, the, the climate crisis without oil and gas. And so in some senses, we need to step back a little bit and say, well, how did we get here? Because actually behind this lies a, an underestimation of the real problem. If it was just as simple as let's just turn off this oil and gas and we'll have no more climate crisis, we'd have solved this decades ago. The problem is that every single part of our lifestyle, every part of the way our society is built, it's not just ours, this is global, is, has been created on the back of oil and gas. It's fundamental to everything we do. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the buildings we live in, the transportation we take, uh, this conversation. Um, you know, there's nothing which can happen without oil and gas. So in other words, this is not this is not just something that's evil. If we just got rid of it, then we could end divestment. Do you know what I mean? This is something which is so bound up with who we are. And that's why energy transition is so difficult and such a big challenge. Um, so, if, so from my point of view, turning off the supply is extremely dangerous because we are so dependent on this, on these two commodities uh, that you know, for me, it actually feels irresponsible not to have some investment in them because just because of our dependency and this dependency is not evil in itself it's just it's causing problems and we need to shift it um it, so yeah that's that's kind of my broad position I, I i don't want to go on too long but that's i think i've sort of set out the stall in, in that direction and obviously i'd love to hear to debate these areas more yeah perfect thank you so much folks it's it's good to kind of hear both sides um i think you're coming at it from quite different perspectives so it's it's great to see that um, so Ed, if we come back to you on, I guess, one of the points that Paul has made and something that I've been hearing quite a bit about is that um, we are hugely reliant on oil and gas. And so therefore we can't really um, just divest from it because, well, I think Larry Fink, um, CEO of BlackRock was saying at COP that money, it'll find money somewhere else and that money might not be in the public markets. And so it just might end up being slightly more responsible. Um, what do you kind of think about all those points? Yeah, I mean, there's some hugely um, interesting points that, that Paul has made. And, and you know, certainly I'd agree in principle with this, that this sort of supply demand issue that exists. And, you know, where does where does the problem lie? And I think the most ardent of, of um, diverse campaigners just focus on, on, on that supply. And, you know, it's clearly, I don't think there are many um, logical people who would, who, who would say, let's just um, stop burning all fossil fuels tomorrow and, and just live with, with dark rooms and, and no heating for, uh, until we can come up with a solution. But I think, 
um, part of the, 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 the issue with, um, with saying divestment doesn't have a, a role to, to play in this is that the rate of change has just been far too slow. Um, you know, there are, um, there, there's just this constant sort of moving the goalposts when it comes to, to climate change, um, solving climate change, um, you know, whether that's um, some of the, the, the um, goals and targets that were outlined in, in Paris in 2015 that are now being redebated um, up at COP and, and, you know, various scenarios that are, are being projected on, on um, what current um, targets and ambitions mean for, for um, global warming. You know, they're just, they're just completely inconsistent with what the science is telling us. Um, so I think the divest movement is, is still very relevant in trying to apply as much pressure as it can to a range of, of stakeholders, not just the companies, but their shareholders, policymakers, politicians. You know, it's, it's really important this voice is, is heard. It's something that really struck me actually being up at COP was just the, the range of actors that you have up on the stage there. You know, it's not just heads of state making big pronouncements. It is it is down to your sort of man on the street who is is protesting um, uh, against um, what what they perceive to be climate in, injustice. So I think you know the divestment movement still has a, a really important part to play in this, and the the acceleration away from from fossil fuels needs to be more more rapid than ever. Um, you know, there is always this talk of, well, if you're just selling your shares, who, who's going to buy them up? Um, you know, Larry Fink made this point about opaque private markets. Um, it's a very interesting point that, that he was making because it's almost one of governance. It's not just an environmental point. And really, he's saying, you know, without, without shareholders who can assess the company publicly, who is going to be able to hold these two accounts? But you know, if you just review the major owners of, of oil and gas assets around the world, well, state-owned enterprises already account for a great proportion, you know, three of the five biggest emitters companies from, from Saudi Arabia's Aramco to Russia's um, Gazprom, um, the National Iranian Oil Company is, is up there as well. So, you know, arguably these are already problems that we're, we're facing in this sector. So you then have to compare it to um, publicly listed oil and gas companies and the track record there. And it's not a, a sector that has, has recorded a, a very good track record when it comes to responsible behavior from you know, ignoring climate science and, and actually arguing very strongly against it from, from this. We've had you know, major environmental disasters from Macondo to, to, to other um, oil spills that have had huge um, human and environmental costs. Um, you know, let's not forget much bigger issues such as the, the, the countless um, wars that have been fought over natural resources and, and you know, all, of, all of those impacts across, um, uh, across the, the, the world. Um, so, you know, I think we, we have to consider a, a couple of things if we're if we're worried about opaque owners in this space, we're, we're kind of already there. And it's another reason to use every lever that we have to accelerate the transition away from, from, from the sector. We would argue, you know, divestment can be one, one way of doing that. 
I would stress, you know, it's not it's not the only way. And, and there are lots of other things that need to happen for divestment to play an effective role. I don't think it's it's a, it's something that works in isolation. The only other point that I'd make on, on what Larry Fink said is, is actually in agreement with him. He said, you know, this is a this is a problem I think we've seen, not just in this sector, but across um, equity markets in general, that a, a quite large shift to, to private equity um, owned assets. And actually the real focus has been on the public markets with this whole sort of net zero climate change debate. So he was saying, you know, we've really got to bring private capital on this journey with us. And, and I think that's something that's very important to consider. That's very interesting. So Paul, I guess um, there's some points there that kind of maybe don't quite fit with the narrative that you were saying. So for instance, um, kind of that, that view that we still need fossil fuels today, but there is a point that maybe the other levers that the asset management industry have say engagement aren't working quick enough. And so how do you feel about that? Do you think that maybe we're not at the tipping point to divestment and there is a tipping point or how do you kind of think we need to work to get yes, there? There's a lot of points to cover there. And thanks Ed for all of those points. Um, yeah, I, th I think going back to Larry Fink's point about, well, if we sell them, then somebody else will own them. I mean, that's been true of every divestment program. And of course, that's also true if you sell something for human rights reasons, not only will someone else own them, they'll probably profit from them because, you know, you might be selling really good investments because you're doing it for an ethical reason. Um, and so I don't quite buy that argument. That's certainly not why I'm uh, against divestment for oil and gas. Uh, for me, it's it's much more to do with the, the damage that it can do. And, and started with that blame shifting. I think that is a piece of damage where we, if we don't blame ourselves for climate change, we try to blame oil and gas companies for it. They made a very fundamental mistake in my view. And I, I keep hearing it on, on the news, on the media programs, people want somebody to blame other than ourselves, but <clears throat> we can't let ourselves off the hook like that. This is all of our problem. We've all created it. And you know that goes back to a question of, who should be regarded as the emitters with oil and gas? Is it the oil and gas companies or is it the users of the oil and gas? And I'm really clear it should be the users of the oil and gas who are the emitters. It's not, it's not even Saudi Aramco. They, they emit, of course, they emit insofar as they have emissions to get the oil and gas out of the ground. And that and and what's interesting, of course, is that the private companies have been way better at lowering the carbon emissions of production than the state-owned companies. Um, and I absolutely take your point out about, you know, there's been some very bad behaviour amongst particularly the oil majors, and it's also true of human rights. You know, I, there's many oil majors I wouldn't touch on human rights grounds. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the climate change denial that was around, uh, you know, was, was dreadful. Um, so, you know, I suppose I'm in a position where if I thought for one minute that divestment would um, slow down the rate at which we use oil and gas, uh, then actually I'd, I'd be in favour of it. But the problem is I don't think it, I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't think it's true is because oil and gas demand is what we call completely inelastic. So, you know, when the gas price spiked by fivefold in the UK, how much less do you think we used? Actually, you know, probably no less. We just paid up. And so it, it, the reason it's inelastic is because we're so dependent. And I just, I just think <clears throat> that that point about dependency, I think is hugely undermade in the media. So most people have no idea how dependent their lives are on oil and gas. And it was very interesting when the fertilizer plant shut down at Billingham in, in the north of England, 
suddenly everyone realized, well, food packaging, there's no, nobody producing CO2 anymore. Ironically, nobody producing CO2 anymore for the food packaging. But, the, you know, actually, I think the reason why the government very quietly bailed out the fertilizer plant was because they knew perfectly well if we don't have fertilizer for the UK, our, produ our farming production will go down by 50%. So, you know, if, if you took fertilizer, uh, which I should say this Billingham plant is uses 1% of uh, UK natural gas demand. So it's probably, it's one of the biggest industrial users in the country. Um, without fertilizer, we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves. So, you know, I think, you know, the problem with climate, climate change is it's a huge crisis, but there's no point solving it by bringing forward the crisis to today that will, you know, will kill, you don't solve it by killing half the population now, if you see what I mean. And by underestimating our dependency on oil and gas, we, we A, don't grasp the magnitude of this problem of solving climate change, so we just underestimate it, and we just think oh, it can all be solved in a couple of years. Um, and, and uh, we, but we also potentially unleash really terrible economic crises on the way, which are not going to make the problem solvable. Because actually, to solve the climate crisis, we need strong economies, and it's it's hugely expensive, as we all know. It's going to require massive investment, and you don't you don't bring that about by precipitating other kinds of crises. So, and the final point I'd maybe make because it, because we have this inelastic demand. Let's say we shut down the UK North Sea, which so many people seem to want to do, because the demand is inelastic. All that will achieve is it will just buy the oil and gas from somewhere else. And in fact, that the carbon footprint of that oil and gas will go up probably fivefold, because you know, think about what's the what's the carbon footprint of LNG imported into uh, into Scotland versus North Sea produced oil and gas. Um, but the difference is probably five. In fact, it's more than fivefold. It's 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 vast. So LNG is hugely a carbon expensive way of meeting our energy needs. So actually. The, that's a kind of we begin to get into the kind of weeds of irrationality and, and adverse consequences which come from for me making a sort of certain intellectual mistakes and even though politically i can see it sounds great and then when the politicians get questioned about this stuff they kind of they jump on the, the oversimplification of it because it's easy for them to do that i don't for one minute really believe they think it's as simple as as that but they'll you know, they'll, they'll sort of jump on the bandwagon of this kind of thinking, but it, it actually the potential damage of it, I just see is very large. So for me, it's not just that I'm, you know, I want to profit from oil and gas investments, I'd happily give that up. But actually I do see, I, I can see some quite significant perils here by getting way too cavalier about the production of uh, commodities on which we are still massively dependent. Okay, very interesting. Ed, do you kind of want to touch upon the, the blame shifting point that Paul's been talking about a little bit? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a very interesting debate, um, this this sort of blame thing, because of course everyone does want to to blame another another actor other than themselves, another stakeholder other than themselves. Um, and I think probably for you know the, the first time with a, a crisis such as as this um we are all now being confronted with with pers personal choices that we have to make in our own lives and i think really this will be the crunch point for how we deal with climate change are people prepared at least in the short term to make the investments in their life that, that they're going to be asked to make you know will you will you change your gas boiler to a heat pump Will you install 
a charging station at home so you can charge your your electric car um and and these are these are complicated issues and they're complicated from a from a political perspective too as as paul has has rightly alluded to um and a, a big issue with this is the underestimation that people have on on their reliance on on oil and gas i mean nothing nothing around us is made without without fossil fuels at the moment you know that's we are still in the fossil fuel era um i think one thing though is that if you think about um, how divestment works, and, and you know, Paul spoke very well about the, the South African example um, earlier. You know, with that, you're, 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 there's an economic divestment from from South Africa, but you're trying to affect some some change. And we would still argue that the change divestment from from oil and gas is is trying to affect is a speedier transition to to a, a, a more sustainable economy. And I wonder if just as people are underestimating the current reliance on oil and gas, they're also underestimating the potential rate of change that we may be able to affect if we have everything in place that, that we need. And that's not just not buying shares in oil and gas companies, that's having an effective carbon tax you know, that's having effective long term um, uh, goals in place at, at the sort of the national and, and local level um, and for those to be to be written into to law. So I think that rate of change is, is really interesting. There are a couple of examples that that do make us think we can we can get there. You know, many of the arguments that we hear about, you know, we're not going to be able to, to to shift to a more renewable energy system before 2050. Kind of reminds us of at a smaller scale, although it was was, was clearly a, a major issue at the time, um, was was with COVID when COVID first emerged, and everyone said, you know, we're now in lockdown economies. There's absolutely no way you can bring um, a vaccination to to large swathes of, of populations within within short periods of time, and, and sort of lo and behold, all the different mechanisms started to. To work and you know red tape got got cut and and uh, you know etc and uh, and we we managed to pull it off at the same time you know we we heard all of these arguments when solar and wind first emerged well you know great they're very small scale they're hugely inefficient um they're very expensive it's never going to work with without subsidies etc but you know you're you're in this debate you're constantly battling the the arguments that essentially come down to short-term risk what's what what's going to be the impact on people if we did stop extracting any fossil fuels tomorrow you know clearly it would be absolutely disastrous for millions and millions of people across the world if that were to happen in you know literally in the next 24 hours but what's the longer term risk for for those populations if we continue down this very slow transition pathway where you know we, we're still forecast to to, to burn huge amounts of, of oil and gas in, in the coming decades that just seem completely incompatible with, with climate science based on where we have to be by the end of this decade to, to ensure that global warming isn't above two degrees by the end of the century. And, you know, that, that is a, a very challenging thing for, ultimately, it's going to be politicians and the people who vote for them to, to work out. Um, you know, there's... But the last thing I'll say is this argument is always particularly applied to the developing world because there's this argument of, well, it's 
hugely unfair, you know, here are we all saying it's time to, to move, roll back from, from oil and gas use, but your economies are just getting started, you're just industrializing. So we've got to we've got to recognize that we, we should allow you to, to industrialize just as we have. Well, there's some quite interesting academic work that's been done on this, which suggests actually this that the leapfrog effect of, of innovation in these developing markets where they don't already have huge amounts of red tape, pre-existing infrastructure could potentially be huge if we just support that, that transition. And you know, we've all seen from the, the climate science, it's those developing countries that are that are most at risk from, from the climate change that our oil and gas um, use has, has caused. Great, thanks, Ed. So I've, I think we're kind of coming to a junction. So um, maybe if we do concluding thoughts, and I start with you, Paul, and I was wondering if in those you could kind of say um, what you would prefer to see rather than the divestment of oil and gas, which um, you're very passionately against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I mean, it, it's I can, I can, where I completely agree with Ed is that, you know, obviously, the transition is too slow and, and it feels like it's too slow and it is too slow and you know um Greta Thunberg's got it right we've just it's just been a talking shop for 25 years and not that much has been achieved nowhere near enough has been achieved I suppose my argument is it's a complete red herring to talk about oil supply here because oil supply is not the problem it's demand that's the problem so you know I I it's interesting, we could do a thought experiment here, and I've, I've done this thought experiment, I'd be interested to see both of your views on how this plays out. So let's imagine that at COP26, um, all the world leaders are in the room together, and there's a rule passed that, you know, if the carbon, in, carbon dioxide in the uh, atmosphere goes above, <clears throat> you know, whatever what level we pick, let's say, you know, 424, 425, um, in the next two years, then they all get fired. Every single one of them has to resign and somebody else takes over because they didn't do a good enough job on climate change. Okay, let's imagine that scenario. What do you think they would do? Okay, and then, then, then when you ask that question, you come up, well, what are the real solutions to this problem? And there are real solutions to the problem. It's just they're not doing them. Okay, and what they wouldn't do here, because this wouldn't solve it, is just say, okay, we're just going to stop producing oil and gas. That's going to, all that would do is it would kill half the population of the world, right? So that's not the solution. What they would do, though, is they would very quickly agree that the user pays for the pollution. And this goes back to the point Ed made about uh, carbon tax. You know, the, we will not solve this problem without a carbon tax. So why the hell are we waiting so long to put one in place? Um, so, you know, and it, the user of the carbon should be paying for it. And of course, what that means for you and me is, we'd have to pay a lot more for our energy. And you'd probably be talking, you know, a realistic rate of carbon tax would be probably something like $100 per tonne of CO2 emitted, because then that enables you to not just abate that carbon, and, and we'll get into the debate here about, well, um, how, do you, how do you really mitigate the carbon in the atmosphere? Well, sure, you can grow trees and you can do nature-based solutions, but the problem is that's not really reversing what we've done. You know, we dug this stuff from this stuff up from underground. What we need to pay for is to put it back where it came from. That's how you stop the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere rising. You pay for it to be buried, and uh, that's expensive. 
and it's probably going to cost you $100 a ton to do it. And the whole nature-based solution thing just confuses that in a way. You know, maybe you pay $10 a ton for that. You're not going to pay $100 a ton for it because you've only got rid of it for a generation. You haven't really, you haven't taken it out of the equation. And, you know, grow trees when those trees rot or they get put into wood and when the buildings get pulled down and it rots, the carbon dioxide comes back out. So you've just put it somewhere for a while. It, to bury it will cost you $100 a ton. And so, you know, I think, I think two things. We need a carbon tax of about $100 a ton paid for by the user. And we'll get into all kinds of complex negotiations about, you know, how do you calculate it? And really, that's the kind of conversation we should have been having over the last two weeks. How do you calculate it? And then you need the technologies and the, um, the industrial effort going into carbon sequestration underground. And there's some great technologies, a fantastic company that I've heard about in Iceland called Carbfix, which has proven you can crystallize carbon dioxide underground in basalt. There's a vast amount of basalt rock we could put this into. There's other solutions around. Carbon capture technology itself is advancing and there's, we've got some great companies in the UK we could be investing in. They've all got problems if they need capital, they need government policy. Until there's a carbon price, nothing can happen. And every single carbon plan around the world is relying on carbon capture and storage and it ain't happening right now. So, you know, those are the areas I would say, how, it goes back to that thought experiment. If I was in that position, I didn't want to lose my job. I'd be saying, we've got to do this tomorrow. Um, yeah, that's, that's my kind of broad thoughts on it. I really wish we could implement the thought experiment. I think that would be have a fascinating outcome um, from COP. Um, Ed, do you want to give us some closing thoughts and yeah, potentially anything else you would like to see from, from the government as well to kind of support the transition? Well, I also enjoyed that um, that false experiment. I would enjoy mostly just seeing the panicked look on uh, on politicians' faces as um, it became apparent they couldn't just change their policies to win another election and, and enjoy another five years. Um, I, I think we've reached a you know a point of of agreement over the, the, the carbon tax. I guess you know the angle that that. I would still argue for is that divestment is is relevant to still applying pressure to to all of these different stakeholders who who you know have have not brought this in yet um you know that that to some extent still includes the fossil fuel companies you know they they don't seem to be as worried about climate change as they should be they they're, they're sort of acting in a way, as though they're more worried about climate change policy, you know, and there's a big difference between the two. I think fossil fuel companies had about 500 lobbyists up at COP. Um, you know, they weren't all up there to talk about their investment in renewable energy technology, clearly. Um, so, you know, what needs to happen to, to pressure the companies? Well, I think, you know, ultimately, and I, I would think Paul would probably agree with this, you know, on, on both the supply and the demand side, this is in some senses just that boils down to a cost of capital argument. You know, can you apply enough pressure on these companies that it makes them question their business models? Um, and, and if you can begin to do that and they can see that the solution is something like a carbon tax, then what you will get is them properly investing in some of the technologies that, that Paul has discussed, you know, carbon capture and storage. Why, if you were a, a, an oil and gas company, would you be spending a load of your capex on that right now? You, you just don't need to. There's, there's no incentive. 
who at the moment you're you're enjoying probably the greatest um, subsidy that's ever existed in, in the absence of that tax, which has left you know left some hedge fund investors such as Chris and Odie to um, to, to be saying that this is the, the greatest arbitrage opportunity of all time as all of these ESG investors move away from areas of the market like this. Well, yeah, that exists at the moment, but it'll disappear pretty quickly with, with the right taxes in place. Um, we actually went up to, to visit um, Drax, the, the power station in the UK. We saw their carbon capture um, and, and storage um, technology which they're developing you know it looks like a small science experiment next to the to the massive sort of burning um stations that they have there so you know this technology needs a a load of investments and i think you know just just and ending it by addressing your final question there kathleen i think that's what um we still need we still need greater stimulation in um in some of this new technology we we need to be um, really um, encouraged to invest in in these areas of the economy, um, and I think the the rate of change could be could be truly exponential if investors just start to see that um, that there's a real economic argument for, for for shifting their focus from oil and gas companies to elsewhere in the market. Brilliant, thank you. And I I do like that we've reached some level of agreement on a on a carbon tax. It's nice to kind of have something to agree on um, and a lot of food for thought on both sides um, around the divestment debate. So thank you both so much for all your time today. <laughs>